Hi, I'm Katerina and this is Sound Effects, a new music and mental health podcast. You're listening to a song right now called Sun by Adam Fajcek from the Adam Fajcek EP1. My guest today is Adam, the drummer of Baby Shambles and solo project Rose's King's Castles. In its sense, my day was done. I'm going to be talking to him today about his research and journey from childhood to baby shambles to current work as a psychotherapist working with musicians. I really hope that you enjoy it. Yeah, yeah, also, I mean, I'm based in an addiction clinic as well, Um, so I I kind of, I do more addiction stuff at the minute and with musicians, but I also work with just people that aren't connected to any of those areas as well, Um, I have a small private practice, as well as being a musician myself, Um, so trying to juggle all those things together. Yeah. Obviously, you're in. It's Roses Castles. Roses yeah, Castles. I mean Roses Castles. That was that was really a side project I formed, uh, 2007 or eight. I think I was writing lots of stuff, which some of it was was getting picked up by Baby Shambles, and some of it wasn't. Um, so you know, in the days of MySpace, just created a page and threw some stuff out, and there was a big support network. So released an album. It was signed by Parlophone, EMI. Just unluckily enough, just as we were going through. All the details of that signing. The whole collapse of EMI happened and Terra Firma came in and kind of wiped out loads of the staff, um, which really fragmented the whole of that. I think the whole industry was kind of in collapse at that point. So my album was, was recorded and ready to go, signed and caught up in all the administration of that. So it took a while to try and pick it and get it myself to self-release it. Um, and then got in touch with a company called 36 Degrees, no, 360, they'll kill me for saying that, 360 Degrees Music, um, who subsequently I've stayed in touch with, you know, a small indie label who are really passionate, put themselves behind it, and uh, I've done other stuff with them subsequently. Yeah. How how frustrating is that, like, when that happens? Because obviously, you know, you put all that effort into yeah. a work, and then through no fault of your own, mm. something else happens, and it puts everything on hold. Like, I wonder what Yeah, it was. It was, a real, it was really frustrating, because at one point, I had tours and stuff all planned around the release, and obviously a release at that level, when it's going to come out on Parlophone, it's going to have a lot more push than stuff that I can do on my own. Mm. Um, so it was frustrating, but I guess at that point, Baby Shambles was really flying, so just pragmatically got on with it and thought I need to find another label now to do this and, and I did. At that time the industry was a very different place. I think people will need to take risks and put stuff out. Um, very different to now where there's a huge reluctance to, to put money behind music which is a bit more left field and curveball rather than something which is predominantly going to be quite safe. Yeah. I was reading your um, blog post, like, well... Um, right, on, oh, the old ones. On, yeah, All I was trying to read the, the ones that you wrote, uh, you, you had a blog post of when you were touring. Oh right, years you, ago on the WordPress one. Yeah, yeah. and I was trying to read it, it wouldn't, it wouldn't load. Oh was, right, yeah, that's thinking, probably a good thing. Oh no, <laughs> I really wanted to read it because um, I, I got really kind of intrigued that you said, um, you know, you often work with people or that you have worked with musicians and like from your unique perspective because you were a musician there's this kind of really subtle nuanced aspect of the industry that you mm. can tune into around what it's like when you're dealing with hectic touring schedules and you have yeah. this blog post so I was thinking oh, what was that blog post? I think so and I think that's part of what 
you know what what I wanted to bring to it because obviously you know you're a therapist as well you sit in front of someone and you don't really ever know their experience and I think to try to to, to feel we do know that does it a disservice we miss loads so there's always that element of subjective experience we're never going to tap into but you know I do know when so, when an artist talks about going on tour and the whole carousel of press I know my experience of that, which probably is quite similar to theirs in view of the practicalities of up and down the country and the European stuff and how that works. I'm never going to know the meaning that they derive from that and their own particular uh, insight from it. They, they'll gather, but I think having that knowledge, even that knowledge of what it's like to go on a tour bus, you know, just, just the touring element of it... Um, I think it's really it's intrinsic to, to enabling my work anyway with other musicians. Mm. And you found that yourself when you were having therapy initially, because I, I heard some interviews you did where you said mm. you, you couldn't necessarily find that right fit. I really struggled, yeah. I looked around and I found some therapists that were music industry therapists. I mean, back then it wasn't as... I guess it wasn't as prolific as it is now. Now there's a whole kind of sea of them. But, um, yeah, I, couldn't, I found a few, and, and they were coming from... You know, I was coming from the red corner, they were coming from the blue corner. None of them were actual musicians within the commoditized framework. So I felt I didn't really get it. Um, I think, in hindsight, I think most good therapists can probably probably do, you know, do a good job anyway. But I really looked for somebody to have that sense of being a musician, because I think that's innately difficult anyway. Being a musician is hard, the creative uh, struggles we all have and then you put that into a framework where you have to commoditize that so you've already got this tension of art versus business and then you know then you add to that if there's some profile or you know low level fame there's a whole tier of struggle and then of course we've all come into that journey with our own wounds as well so I really struggled to find anyone that would really understand that um, it was it was difficult yeah and is that what you're yeah, yeah, well, actually, I mean, I, I had a PhD proposal accepted, and I was going to start that in Leeds, um, and I decided to kind of continue my clinical training, and that was to do with what I just said, the interaction of our own wounds, because I think as human beings, we've all got our bumps and bruises anyway. So as we are, as people, um, and then that interacting with the environment, so the psychosocial elements, the environmental conditions, and the uniqueness of playing music, and then what comes out the other end. But the more time I spent within the framework of being a music industry specialist um, in regards to my therapy work, I don't know, I started to be more... The hub of my passion is probably working with musicians mm -hmm. and then the periphery of being in the industry is what I see as the outside of that rather than what I see most of the music industry therapists do at the moment is this about the industry and I find you know where's the person in there where's the artist mm -hmm. so the D site is going to be more clinical based on um, dissociation dissociative conditions and how to use music in that so it's not going to be industry specific because I think I, I lean much more into working with a musician and music psychology rather than music industry stuff. I just felt that, that there was a huge sea change of, of music industry therapists and I started to have kind of similar subtle triggers of how I did exist in the industry with some of the framework and I thought I don't want to be in this kind of commoditized industry now of mental health as well so this doesn't work for me so for me I really want to focus on the musician and how to best adapt to their environment rather than coming from here's your environment and amongst that there you are mm. you know I want to go to really the core of an essence of a person who they are as a musician that's my interest mm. and you know I, my, the, the frame of my model is about I guess integrating and I, and I draw a lot on um, I don't know what kind of listenership you've got but you know regarding parts and how we're all different parts etc and we're all dissociative on a certain scale um that's the framework of my integrative model really i draw a lot of that in psychoanalytical relational stuff okay so you draw me more on psychoanalytical well the the course i was at was was based in that it was integrative it's very humanistic as well but it's a lot on um you know multiplicity philip bromberg people that talk about these parts and not me parts and how we enact those things out of our awareness um, and also myself I I, I struggled with um, 
derealisation a lot okay. um, in my teens. So I'm very much aware of how that can impact. And I've got a few musicians also in the industry that, that struggle with a similar kind of um, creative adjustment, we'll call it. Um, so I'm really interested in, in A, you know, how I've used music as a listener and a performer to try to integrate that. I guess it would be probably a trauma trigger anyway, like a hypervigilance, which then triggers the dissoci dissociation of that stuff. Um, it's quite complex, but that's, that's what I'm really interested in. So it's probably quite more leaning into music therapy. It's not music therapy because it's psychotherapy, but it's leaning into that area. Well, I think that's really interesting, and I'm wondering whether just, like, for, for the listenership, if you might explain what you mean when you say derealisation and dissociation, just... Yeah, well, I guess, um, right, this is where it gets heavy. Um, so, dissociation, as it is, in a very mild form, you know, if we're driving along a motorway and we just kind of zone out, it's also quite similar to flow in terms of being a musician when we get into that state where we're kind of disconnected in a way, but in a quite a, a nourishing way. We're really quite fluid. Um, I think sometimes to do with whatever hormones are flowing through our brains, if we've experienced trauma growing up, we have a very, we're more easily triggered. And part of that trigger system can be, you know, the fight, flight, fear response stuff. And a part of that is derealisation, where we just feel a bit out of touch. Things feel slightly unreal. We feel a bit cognitive, cognitively fuzzy. I think it's a phenomenon lots of people experience. My biggest struggle with that was during music to try to focus on exactly what I want to perform, the, you know, the, the high calibre of performances I was doing, um, which still kind of gets in the way I can go a bit cognitively offline. But... On another sense, when, when I'm getting quite busy mentally, it kind of cuts in like a thermostat and calms me down in a way. Um, so for me, I just see it as a bit of a biological creative adjustment that, that my own biosystem has, has created for me. But I use music in a sense of I can almost um, lessen that impact by listening to certain music or lessen the impact by playing certain things on my instrument in probably a mindfulness way. So I'm quite interested in that, in, in using that in trauma. So, for example, another part of the association is people will experience a traumatic event in their um, whatever childhood, adolescence, and they'll cut it off. So it's still manifesting physically certain triggered situations, but they have no cognitive awareness of it. But by utilising certain musical interventions, whether it be a piece of music that they listen to at the time, something which reminds them of the event... The goal is to try to work with some of that trauma stuff. I mean, it's all in its early days yet, my thesis on that, but that's my main interest at the moment. And, yeah. you know, it may shift, but that's what it's going to start out as doing that. Yeah. I'm really excited about that. Myself. Yeah, yeah. I'd love to, when obviously you're researching it, but eventually I'd love to read it. All of course, yeah, of yeah. It'll be a book one day. Yeah, well, I'll read it for sure. Because um, I know you're, you're doing so much around that area and um, you talk a lot about how it's kind of informed by your own experiences yeah. with trauma growing up and I suppose I'm really curious about that like I don't know how much you want to go mm. into it but whether you might talk a bit about what that trauma was and, and what your childhood was like and yeah. where that developed well I guess you know trauma is a big word and everyone always says to me well what's trauma and, and you know as you're aware there's two types of trauma there's what we call complex trauma <laughs> which is, I think, a series of um, misattunements regarding our parenting and growing up in certain environments, which were, you know, using all these terms, but less than optimal. So we're not considered that kind of trauma. I think probably by its very nature, many of us of a certain age have grown up in probably parental environments which haven't been optimal for us to attune to our, our parents. I mean, my parents were up at a very young age as well, which was one part of it, I think. Um... And I think it was quite dysfunctional passed down from the family system. Mm -hmm. So growing up, I think I grew up feeling quite fearful at times in hypervigilant situations. Um, and then when we couple that with uh, probably an impoverished framework um, and you know, kind of council estate growing up with that sense of... Uh, I think I was highly autonomous as a child. Mm -hmm. So I think it was this high autonomy coupled with... Not not hopelessness, but there was no real gravitas or sense of what we can achieve. It was, right, okay, we need to fight for whatever we can get. Um, and then parents splitting up again, 
uh, like second set of parents, lots of loss around the family. Um, and I think on one side of the family also, there was you know intergenerational trauma passed down from from my grandmother's side of having lots of her family wiped out at Second World War time, etc. So I think that stuff kind of gets passed down in people's own style of parenting. I think it definitely impacts parents' ability to attune to their children. I know my own children now, I've learned so much from my own journey that, um, uh, God, probably the, the money I've spent in therapy alone is justified by my own children's sense of emotional regulation. Um, so I think it was, you know, a series of just clunky parenting, really. I mean, there are obviously events that may be not appropriate to go into here, but, um, you know, I, I was around, I saw violence, you know, I saw addictive behaviours, um, subsequently failed at school, you know, realising that I was um, dyslexic, which really had a huge impact at the time. So leaving school with no qualifications, a real dour sense of hopelessness, and then starting to explore, probably regulating myself through substances, and remember feeling, wow, this is the happiest, happiest I've ever felt um, from taking certain drugs. And I look back now, and it's quite, it's quite a sad place to think that, you know, the happiest I ever felt was taking certain substances. Um, maybe that happens for a lot of people, but for me, it was quite a, quite a dire situation. It was quite hopeless. There was no sense of what I can do to get out of that environment, that framework. It was really kind of warehouses, crime, that was kind of it, really. Um, and then coming through that, having a real struggle at one point, um, lost a friend through suicide, and really kind of collapsed internally, really a sense of, uh, um, I think, more like an implosion almost. Reluctant to use the word breakdown, maybe it was, but... Um, depending how you define that word and then coming through that and and my first therapeutic experience there seeing a counsellor who who posed the immortal question of what do you want to do and for me it's like what do you mean do I have a choice in this so I said oh, I, I quite like playing the drums so from there went and studied and uh, done like a BTEC in music and done a degree then realised wow if I put some energy in I can get some energy out of this and actually achieve and get maybe I don't know become a musician properly one day or a music teacher etc um, so from there he yeah, had degree then PGCE then and I started to embark upon a master's in music music education and at the same time I was in loads of different bands um, it was interesting because at that time you know it wasn't very cool to, to hold your academia alongside your kind of rock and rollness but for me the academia was almost more of an alternative thing from where I grew up mm. was a lot of the bands I was around you know, they had quite good educations and it was frowned upon. We don't talk about that. I thought, really, for me, you know, when I go back home, none of my friends have got degrees. That's just a degree. Um, so for me, I was always quite proud of that and I always held both, you know, equal to It was more rebellious for me to almost to have gone to university in a weird kind of sense than to go out and, and take loads of drugs and get up to all sorts. So yeah, from there, moved into academia, did loads of bands and I expected to just be do some teaching, do some sessions, do some wedding bands. Um, never really expected, you know, the huge making it music industry stuff. And, um, yeah, I guess um, fate smiled and off I went on the Baby Shambles wagon yeah. for many years. Which I'm going to go into yeah. in quite a lot of depth. And I was just on the way of what you were describing. Um, I'm just thinking about that first experience you had with the counsellor and thinking, how did it... How did it come to be that you saw a counsellor? Was it through your own choice? No, I think I wasn't really in, in a position to actually contact a counsellor. And for me, I wouldn't have known what a counsellor was at that point. Um, I, I, it was totally off of my radar. It wasn't even something I'd heard about. I think, you know, God, you're looking at, what, early 90s then? Um, so I think it was my mother who contacted a bereavement counsellor because this was all kind of spearheaded, I think. The whole you know, breakdown implosion thing was from a friend of mine taking his own life. We'd just been to see some bands and there was a lot of drugs around anyway, so it was very murky. And whether or not it was intentional or not, um, I don't know. But I think that was overlaid on top of my sense of hopelessness and all the relational stuff I'd grown up with, all the all the losses, um, you know, the... The, the small complex traumas as we described and those little kind of, those little these little bumps in the road growing up um, 
And for me, I think that was the straw that broke the camel's back in a way. Um, so then, what was the question again? I forgot. How, how you came into counselling. Oh, right, counselling. So, yeah, so I think my mother had contacted a bereavement counsellor, so I had 10 or 12 sessions with, uh, with her. And it was, I think it was the first time I really felt probably what real attunement was, sitting in front of somebody and, them, and me having that, that space with them. Um, but I think the most pertinent thing was that somebody said to me what do you want to do mm. and that was such an alien concept to me I felt it, it wasn't even a question that I'd, I could hold and say well I don't have any choice just conceptually it, it was just what well, didn't even I didn't even know I didn't know it mm. um, and she was very supportive you know she, she took me to like the library and stuff and really facilitated all the applications and because I think there was some other there was other involvement um, with some of the other services that I was getting myself into trouble with. I think they were quite happy to fund me to leave and go and relocate to Essex where I'd done this BTEC. Mm. Um, so she was, yeah, she was monumental. And I think sometimes myself as a therapist, I sit there and I scratch my head and think, OK, what, what, what are we doing here? What, what am I offering? Which I think is a really healthy place for a therapist to have question ourselves and I always think back to that I think well just the very essence here of being heard mm. you know it's huge it's massive it's understated it's, it's underestimated um, so I reflect upon that it's a really really important time um, and set me on this whole new tra- trajectory really to get to here yeah. um, so that's how I found it yeah I found it via my mother I think contacting somebody yeah. I think that's uh, so crucial what you say and I can see the link in who you are as a therapist now looking back at yourself then that mm. first experience of therapy because if I, if I recall my very I, I remember when I first had therapy and I, I often go back to that as well and remember how I felt and what it was that enabled me mm. to open up and I always remember that with each first session and yeah it yeah sounds as if you um when you were talking to me before about not wanting to impose the industry structure on the individual but to look at the individual mm. as a person I can really hear the younger you co- like coming out in that, like that acknowledgement yeah. yeah yeah I think it leads into a lot of person-centered stuff mm. and my own take on it, I think person-centered is, is you know immensely powerful and I think all therapists now use you know that Rogerian core conditions it's kind of part of it but um yeah I think sticking with some of those core principles of just seeing the other and being there Literally, mm. you can't can't go wrong with that stuff, and it's taken for granted. How much? How many of us have the luxury of that space in our lives? You know, not not many. Um, so yeah, that was my first experience of it. Mm. Really powerful. Yeah. That that question, what do you want to do, leading to what you do right now. Mm. So, yeah. 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 You know, I think that whole um, trajectory of getting here of what do I want to do. That question had never been posed. I didn't really get that from school. I'm sure, you know, I can sit here and I'm very reluctant to point fingers and and, and pass the blame because I had a role in that as well. High-level autonomy, shut myself off as well, as as we all do without before we explore our narrative. But, yeah, having that kind of um, aired between us and and, and feeling I can actually... um, be heard in what I wanted to do and at that point I, I wasn't really I tinkered around a bit on keyboard and, and drums but god I didn't know what a real music lesson was really and then you get to baby shambles yeah <laughs> <laughs> and shambles yeah um, well it was a shambles wasn't it really how did that emerge how well I was in loads of different bands in Old Street um, it was kind of a bit of a, a, a scene going on through there and I was in, well, I was very good friends with, with a guy called Patrick Warden, and we're still good friends now, but he was he was a guitar player in a band called The White Sport I was in. I was in two bands, The White Sport and Mains Ignition. Mains Ignition with this amazing electro outfit, um, kind of electro pop stuff going on, and White Sport were more guitar-led. And Pete would often come to the studio where Mains Ignition would be rehearsing and kind of borrow a guitar, because everyone knew each other, really. And we knew the Libertines, and we knew they were quite big. They weren't as big as they are now. Um, and Patrick was in a band and then I think Pete had met Patrick through a guy called James Lord that was managing Mains Ignition as well so it was all quite um, you know insidious I guess and then 
Pete wanted to do something external of Libertines. I think he was getting bored or getting too much pressure recording the second album, so he wanted to do his own thing. Um, so he asked Patrick to play guitar, and then they found a drummer and a bass player, so they were touring, and then the White Sport was supporting them. And then Baby Shaman's drummer, um, I think she she didn't want to get involved with what she perceived as the facilitation, I think, of Pete's drug use at the time. Um, and again, you know, she, I would tour with these, so she was, she was a really good drummer, but I think she just felt it wasn't for her. So she stepped down, and so they had a space. So Patrick asked me if I wanted to join, and, and I did. I, was, I just remember my heartbeat thinking oh god because I knew that they were on the ascent you know, I knew that great things I didn't know how long it would last because I could tell it was about to implode at any minute mm-hmm. I had that real energy about it um, yeah and I, was, you know, I started this masters in music education and I thought my, my, my path then was going to be a bit of my own I was really into jazz and my undergraduate was in jazz so I was doing a lot more jazz, jazz vibraphone playing I was just starting to move into being a jazz percussionist so I had some physical injuries on my, on my drum leg um, so I was doing more of that and piano playing. So I've set up my whole kind of path alongside music education and hopefully at one point, some point, you know, doing both, so education and performing. But it would have been on a professional level rather than a commercial level, you know. Um, and if I can get in some commercial gigs, you know, that's great. But, um, yeah, I got the phone call and I remember just not sleeping and thinking, what am I going to do? Because there's an opportunity here, but I can't, I can't do both because I was doing school the next day as a music secondary school teacher. So decided to jump in after much deliberation. She said, okay, yeah, cool. And I thought, like, worst case scenario, I'll have to wait out another year, then go and do supply or something because um, I didn't really want to turn the opportunity down, really. Um, but on the other side, I had bills to pay. You know, I wasn't lucky enough to be funded and to have wealth coming in. So I had to be quite pragmatic and think, right, I need to earn some money, as it were. Um, so, yeah, took, took that. And, yeah, the first gig was like Brixton Academy. We'd done something in Highbury Islington actually, um, and I think he hadn't turned up or he was late. I thought, what have I got myself into? <laughs> I literally just put the phone down and quit my job. Um, but no, it turned out it was all right, and off we went. A few bumps along the way, and off we went. Yeah, a few bumps. <laughs> yeah, a few bumps and scuffles and skirmishes, but yeah, we all survived. What is it like to be in a band like that? Obviously, because I'm sort of trying to imagine it from my very rudimentary perspective but you're in this band that's on the rise and or you know there's so much going on and your band members essentially are like family I guess mm. on the road and then I imagine that you're quite torn between um, you know the professional aspect of you but also the compassionate side of you you know that people these people around you are sort of falling apart or that mm. the repeat was maybe falling apart and what that's like for you when you're in it in the thick of it like how do you deal with that as a band yeah it's interesting you know you use the term family and I think my sense of family has always been quite fragmented it probably hadn't been now maybe other people have a sense of family but it's been quite disjointed anyway so in that res- in that respect I think my you know all of the traits of growing up in, in quite a bumpy family served me quite well in a way um yeah, I, I knew I knew people were falling apart, but I think there was a point when, especially recording the first album, we were all kind of falling apart together. I think it was really messy. I'd just lost my mother to cancer. Um, Patrick had just lost his dad to cancer. Pete was being incarcerated. He was, you know, the threat of prison for the upteenth time. I don't know what Drew was up to, but there was a real sense of fragility, vulnerability, and you're just falling apart anyway. You know, you can hear that in that first album. I think it's raw, it's brutal. Um... I'm kind of surprised we got through that because of all what I guess we were up to out of the studio and in the studio. Um, I didn't. Really, I think I was so in the thick of it that I just my mechanisms from dealing with growing up in an environment probably proved to be quite useful. Kind of block it out, dissociate, and use whatever I can use to kind of fix the hole in the middle. Um, I think for me it started to become more difficult when the management managerial structure weren't there so we suddenly had just this free floating boat and I knew that we had potential and we were getting you know we were doing some great gigs and flying around the world but there was no one really guiding it it was rudderless you know people was getting arrested more and more that the the press were on our back you know the amount of stories that come out 
every day you'd be reading about stuff which is just fabricated. And you think, wow, the impact of this. So we were cocooned in a way, um, you know, this kind of insular paranoia. Um, and then, yeah, then we lost all the managerial structure. Rough Trade didn't pick up the next album. So that was when it was quite intense for me. Um, I kind of took the reins, the managerial reins, you know, very low level. I wasn't in any way a manager, but it gave me a great insight into the structure. Liaising with agents, liaising with um, publishers, labels, trying to think, right, I've got to try and do my best to give us some direction because everyone else is kind of on the floor and I'm on the floor with them, but at least I've kind of got one knee up. Um, so then negotiated, what did we do next? Yeah, negotiated some, started to speak to labels to try and get some interest. And then we were booked for Get Loaded Festival in Clapham Common and this all started to fragment the band just as he'd booked us. So the guy called Danny Newman that owned Turnmills put us in his studio to record something just to kind of get us back in some kind of cohesion. So he was integral in getting us to deal with EMI really. So we recorded like a big issue sing um, single called The Blinding, like an EP, and we all kept the rights to that as well which was good so we owned it and you know he just let us record in his studio and we'd, we'd literally moved in down there so all of us and by this time we'd changed guitarists so Patrick had, had um, kind of moved away from the band I think there was lots of as always was internal dynamics and yeah we got another guitar player um, so it was already quite fractured but at that point we'd recorded this, this EP and the thing started to take off again and then from there met some managers and they negotiated, negotiated a deal with VMI and it became quite kind of um, a bit more lucid again and off we went for a while and I think that was probably the most commercial that the band were when we were doing arenas with Shots Nation um, yeah and as you were in all of that I'm just thinking about all the losses that you explained that you'd all gone through mm. did you all talk to each other I mean I don't imagine no, you did no, but, no. Yeah, I'm it wasn't it was all shut off you know and I think when you're, in, when you're in the middle of using stuff as well as substance or whatever it may be drink or behaviours you don't I wasn't psychologically minded enough anyway I didn't even really I mean you know when I had those first few sessions of counselling when I was 19 I look back on it now with fondness but it was just was very basic bereavement counselling. There was no depth work about who I am and what constructs my personality. It was just a holding situation, kind of a bit coaching as well. Um, you know, when I compare it to the seven or eight years of therapy now, it's a different process. And so I was nowhere near psychologically minded enough. And when my mother had died, I just shut it out. In the two days later, we were on tour. So it was both a blessing being in that band when she had died and a curse because subsequently when I had more space years and years later that bereavement starts to come up and I think wow what the hell is this I'd forgotten you know in a very odd way I'd forgotten that she died I'd kind of cut it out I dissociated from that as I said earlier I dissociated from that part to such an extent that it almost didn't exist I buried it so far and of course when that journey starts to slow down these things start to permeate um so regarding talking about our losses and that, but no way, you know, we, we weren't that kind of a band. It wouldn't happen, no. And also I'm just thinking of that time, because I guess nowadays, well, only in the last couple of years even, not only are people talking slightly more, not even enough, but slightly more about mental mm. health, um, and more and more research is coming out around um, masculinity and, mm. and male suicide, and thinking about that time you're talking about, um, that just was so off the radar as well mm. in so many ways. So I can, I can see and completely appreciate why that that wouldn't have occurred, and that it, it would have perhaps even even more odd if you did. Yeah, I this. think we'd all buried it. Mm. You know, I think um, I think by the very nature of people who are using behaviours or substances to regulate themselves or to make themselves feel a certain way, then they're going to have great creative resources to try to run away from that stuff you know I know I did and I can speak for at least two of those moments. well no I'd say speak for all of us we're all very good at running um, and then it, it's just not something that would occur to would have occurred to us and you know I've lost two friends through, through suicide and um, yeah and both of them no there was there was no inkling at all 
you know, I'm always mindful of that, thinking, you know, we never know, and still people don't talk, and then it kind of just comes out in, in however it manifests, and unfortunately that is, people just can't hold it, and they do think there's no other solution. Did you go to that place, because you, you had friends who were there? Yeah, it's interesting, you know what, I never did. Okay. I never actually, I kind of partially, I, I kind of partially, partial ideation when probably council or state place just feeling so hopeless thinking it was more a point of pointlessness what's the point rather than a real kind of forceful I don't want to live anymore I think I've got this real innate resilience um, probably from growing up in that windy environment which just okay you need to do what you need to do but there's definitely a point where life is was so bleak it become a bit like on the threshold of I'm not really sure I do um, so I, I could frame it as, as yes I questioned whether there was enough meaning for me in my life to want to continue and I subsequently found that in music mm. um, but I think not to the place maybe some of the people I've worked with do or some people you know, that we've both experienced that unfortunately do pass through that yeah. Yeah. and I'm thinking in terms of relationships connections and relationships mm. within that um, because you're in this band and, I, and I'm just kind of making the connection between relationships in general mm. and um, what it's like when you're in that to actually form um, other friendships or get into relationships and I imagine the you know the media circus around the band mm. and how easy it is to make meaningful connections. It's very difficult. I mean, I think I innately struggle anyway. I'm quite an avoidant person. Um, and I think one of the, the, the toughest things for me in the industry was coming through it and the cliche of the phone stops ringing. And I, I felt I had this kind of, this friendship base. Obviously, upon reflection, in hindsight, it wasn't there. But people that would be on the phone to me five, six, seven, eight times a day and then suddenly just it's this quietness, literally... And, and that's one of the I think the things that moved me into more, more of a bitter angry space post the band was that this sense of real pain of these people that were my friends now they don't even you know, who was I to them and it took me a while of processing this sense of um, I guess abandonment and rejection it took me a bit of processing and coming through that for a lot of the anger and blame to appear because I see now, I mean, I was on ITN the other evening and, and they were alluding to it's the industry's fault. And I'm saying, well, if you'd have asked me that, you know, immediately after Baby Shambles, yes. But now through time, you know, I, I come into that with my own wounds. I had a lot of sensitivities through abandonment and and people and, and no trust in humans in a way. So, of course, being in an industry which is innately an industry and we are a product, um, and I don't mean that in a negative way. I think I perceive some of those uh, business-like relationships probably more than they actually were. Um, so coming through that, I think the most painful thing for me was the loss and all the abandonment, which probably triggered a lot of my own narrative wounding from, from you know parents splitting up, losing parts of family, losing friends, all that stuff as well. Um, and this is why I'm really always, uh, you know, it's important for me to, to, to name that people coming with their own wounds. And it's to how it interacts with the industry experience um, so I think as I got clarity on that and through my own therapeutic process and my process and my own narrative realising that yeah okay I feel okay about the industry now in a way that we, it is a business and we are you know I wouldn't use the term objectified but we are a commodity and that's not good nor bad because if we're not then we can't make any money in it so the bottom line is it's only an industry because people are making money out of you not because they love what you do because that doesn't necessarily equate to having any financial reward to be able to go out and continue being an artist. Um, so the relational part of that is, yeah, I, I kind of maybe naively fell into that trap of having lots of friends and realising that, wow, we're not quite as close as I would have perceived because I no longer have any financial worth for you. Um, and part of that, yeah, part of that narrative it was my own wounds before the industry. Um but I approach it very differently now, I think. Mm. You know, I, I don't... There's no anger or disdain towards any of these industry people because some of them are still my friends. But there were some that were more commoditized than others. But I view it now as an industry. And I don't think that you know, there's good or bad people. I, I think there's a mixture. But effectively, we are a commodity. We need to view it like that. We need to be mindful that we are 
have an importance because of our value. But if they don't engage with that value, then we don't make any money from our art. So we could all choose to not work in the industry and make our music from our bedrooms, but then we'll need to get some kind of side career. So I hold, you know, I hold a much more um, reflective position, really, on the industry these days. Do you think that's part of the narrative that a musician will go through? Because I'm thinking about, you know, the time when people think about becoming musicians, let's say, they might, they might be inspired by a band in their teenage years, and develop a desire to pick up an instrument, and it's coming from that sort of... Um, young romantic place maybe um and joining a band initially might have might carry some of that kind of like it's about the art and um maybe money doesn't matter so much mm. as the experiences and that there is always that sudden sting or that moment where the, the reality hits that this is also a job and and i'm wondering whether that's actually something that a lot of musicians will at some point go through. Yeah, maybe, but again, I don't necessarily think that a musician has to be a musician within either what I would define as a corporate framework or a commercial or commoditised framework. Well, not commoditised, but commercial, because I think, you know, if you're going to be a musician, that's fine. And, and what does that mean, to be a musician? Does that mean that you have to go out and play and be validated by other people mm-hmm. or not? You know, I, I perceive myself now as my core of me being a musician is to get better and more more control and prowess on my instrument for me doesn't necessarily have to translate to some musical artifact or output that's how I define it not others do so for me having that core then the other stuff is periphery I know for some people it's more important for them to have you know financial income from it then you think okay so is that within the commoditized framework of the industry the commercial music industry because there's a whole set of parameters there um, whether you're in jazz classical or pop so if you're in pop, for instance, it's less about the music than about what ethos you present and um, what you look like than if you are in jazz or classical to an extent. Um, and then if you're a professional musician, i.e. you're doing covers bands, it's not as important. It's, you just got to take care of business. So it's different. I think that it's, it's quite a lot of um, different frameworks that we have to think about. And again, I, I'm, I'm lucky enough to work with both. I'm lucky enough to work with professional musicians that are corporate musicians that do lots of you know cover stuff or whatever um commercial pop musicians that predominantly are selling alongside their music and ethos and a look and also jazz musicians which is a lot less percentage about how you look and the ethos more about you need to be able to take care of business uh, you know on a, on, a, on a nightly basis and change your improvisational nature um so i mean it depends on what framework we're in i think it's, it can be quite different it's it's really interesting the way you've kind of come through that journey because that you found a way to to really integrate that those two parts of yourself. It seems mm. that you know the, the part that that can still have the interest and the passion, but still work within this framework of knowing it's it's a business. Mm. And I'm also quite intrigued, also because you you have a family as well, and mm. you have you have a wife and thinking about how these different parts of your life get managed and, mm. and coming from the the beginnings that you've described, knowing that you could get to this place, I'm kind of, well there's a sort of big, I, I have a sense of respect for it, but also mm. like, you know, there's this is possible for other musicians listening, like that that is a trajectory they can get to. Yeah, yeah, I mean I was lucky, well... In, in a sense that you know up until the age of 19 I hadn't any didn't have any academic qualifications or anything so I was written off in the bottom of the pile um, I was kind of I was fired from a YTS so it was it got quite brutal at one stage um, but I think what I did have is this, this resilience and even when you know the drop from the first label just okay I'll just do it myself and I think I've got that part of my which is probably an addictive part of my personality which I can just shut down and become tunnel vision and say I, I will do what I need to do. If that means I need to work 24 hours a day, then I will do it to the drop. And I think that resilience only comes from experience, that I've had to have that level of resilience growing up. So I think that's a healthy thing, in a way, and it can work against me at times. I find it really hard to kind of cut off. Um, but I think people can. I, I, I was lucky again, because I always knew that I had a profession, because obviously I'd done that, that BTEC, that degree and then PGC so I was a school teacher so I knew then whatever happens I'd always have some kind of work somewhere mm. um, and lucky enough you know baby shambles happened when I was late 20s 
So I'd already experienced the real world, as it were. I think if you would have signed me at 19, I probably wouldn't be alive, really, in all fairness. I think because I'd had to exist in the real world, I'd had to get up and do a real job. It's a very different lens when suddenly people give you whatever you want. So I was always aware of thinking, right, I'm really lucky. I need to kind of take every opportunity with both hands here. I think if you're very young, since you have a discussion I have with some labels about how can we best prepare some of these youngsters about what they're getting into um, because it's a crucial part of their life and it might not last forever. So what, what, what other skills do you have? What can you do? And I, I kind of, I never planned on making it, I think. Um, I didn't plan that anything to a, to a young age, but what I could plan from 19 is, okay, I can be a musician and f- find all, all the nourishment I find in music, but I'll also do a bit of teaching and some session stuff. That's more practical to pick up a wedding band and do some teaching in music than it is being on the front of the NME. So from that sense, that's what I did. And then coming through that, that was always going to be my framework. And then my own experience in therapy, yeah, made me think, wow, I've got a lot out of this. And I think that I've got quite a, a unique perspective. I don't know. Well, actually, I know a few people that have, that have done it. Um, but there seemed to be a shortage as well. So I thought, well, it just seems the right thing to do. And from my own, I guess, my own experience of my own, if we call it dysregulation from trauma, I was always very aware how music got me through some of the darkest times. And I was really aware of how that impacts the brain. How does that impact the brain? Why? So when I'd done my second master's, which was the music technology, the thesis at the end of that was how does the production content between a demo and a produced song change the emotional impact? So that's my thesis. And from then I was going to side launch. I was really interested in music therapy, but decided to do therapy, but then use music. So that's how I got to where I am now. Can we talk a bit about that thesis? Cause yeah, I'm of course. Really okay. How, you know, how music does impact yeah, you yeah. and that you're talking about the production mm. what, what did you find from that? Well I found that it was, it was different I mean, and it was very lukewarm research when I started research it I, I didn't really have any idea about what psychology research is mm. so for me it was sending out 20-30 questionnaires and correlating like a little hand coloured in bar graph but the interesting thing was that most people were moved by the actual demos mm. and it was the fact that it was a much more human experience it was less processed mm. so we felt we could get some of the emotion across and the other interesting thing was about the words, and I've never been really into words. I'm much more about melody and harmony um, and maybe some rhythmical element. So for me, it's interesting to hear about the words. And I generally write words around syllables, and then I will put the word around the U, the R, the U, however it, for me, feels. Um, so that was really interesting as well about what impacts people. Um, I think from my own perspective... I'm much more impacted from harmony and melody than I am from words. I think I'm impacted from the melodic flow of a word rather than the meaning of a word. I think when I was struggling at my worst at 19, I was kind of cognitively offline. I couldn't remember, I couldn't really read, watch TV or any of that stuff. Um, I really couldn't conceptualise language in an interesting way. So the only thing that would penetrate and would soothe me would be melody, would be melody, timbre and harmony. So I've always had a real unique interest in, wow, does, how does that get to the brain somehow? So for me, being a musician, I, I, it was almost like self-medicating in a way. I can play the stuff which nourishes me, and I can also listen to it. Or I can learn to play the stuff that I listen to which nourishes me. So there's all that unique perspective, and I'm still really interested in it. You know, I've read a lot of the research on dementia and people like that, that or, or people that suffer from dementia and Alzheimer's and how they really use... How music's used, you know, social prescribing, how we can really use that to, to, to shift or regulate emotions. I think, I think I've read about that research at the University of Sheffield, mm. isn't it? That they're, they're looking at dementia and music and stuff. Yeah, yeah there's lots of interesting stuff, and I think the people that have done the, um, the initial research on Does Music Make You Sick, they're doing something similar now, I think, with the emotional content of music. Um, yeah, it's a really interesting time for all that stuff. Were there any songs that you're thinking of in particular that kind of drove that research when you did the MA um, songs that impacted you mm. specifically? That you're... I think one of them was just an instrumental. It's, it's on the, uh, was it the fifth album I've done. I don't know what it is. It's just the, I, I, I called it the, the Adam Fitchick EP because it was more acoustic. And I felt at that time I didn't really need to lean out of Baby Shambles and I could release my own stuff. So that was the last EP I did last year or the year before. 
and it's just called interlude and it's just like a one and a half minute piece of music and for me it's like it can move me emotionally it's a real simple thing based on like a D minor arpeggio but there it is in essence and I'm sure everyone will just overlook that but for me personally it's like wow I can play that and I can feel better mm. there you go I can play it sonically as an artifact or I can play it live so when I play it live I not only I get the, the sonic and the timbre element I also get the muscular physicality of them, which would quite be but I can sit on that song for about 30 minutes just oh, doing wow. the same thing and what's the impact it has on you? I just feel I think for me it's, I think it's, it's probably something which is similar to the oxytocin of connection you know the love hormone of people when people are attached and I I, I, I guess contextualise it but it's like a transitional object or it's like a some kind of an attachment chemically induced hormonal release of what I feel with certain music because some of the times when I feel the most uh, I guess how can I describe it the most grounded the most open to positivity and, and probably dare I say it, love you know what I describe as the word love that feeling is listening to to music I sound really pompous my own music no but um but that song you know and I, and I I sometimes write chord structures which induce certain emotions in me then I'll overlay a melody um to kind of make it palatable for other people but um yeah it's that feeling it's it's, it's like a real it's a, a real warmth sounded embarrassed when you said love, love I, wondered yeah. why, I wondered why that was I think kind of put in that sort of context of one of my own songs saying I feel immense love when I listen to my <laughs> own song um, yeah it's, it's that feeling isn't it I think it's uh, I guess it is love in a way it's that real that, that warmth that depth that visceral feeling of, mm. of just for me it's being able to stand still and being who I am and where I am yeah, I think probably the, the, the slight shame come from naming my own song. <laughs> well, I'm sure yeah, I think it's alright. Yeah, it does. It's all right. Well, I don't know. It's only like a little interlude. It hasn't had many hits on Spotify, so maybe it hasn't. If I was inducing chemical love, I think it would have more than those amount of hits and listens. But we'll see if you do. Nice. Don't be able to You can. You can. Yeah. Yeah. It's about a minute and a half long. Yeah. It's called Interlude. It's from my last EP. Yeah. Yes. Yes. I just, I don't know, I just sit and play and then something will come up and then I'll sing a melody over the top and then I'll shoehorn some words in and then there it is, really, yeah, so I don't really know. Yeah. Just it's really easy, I find it really easy and sometimes I kind of undervalue it because I can, you know, I'm, I'm sure if I'd done it full time I could probably release two, three albums a year quite easily, I think, really. Um, but I don't want to, you know, dilute it, I want to keep it quite special, really. Yeah. Songs that you listen to by other bands that have that same impact on you? No, it's all me. It's all <laughs> no, I'm joking. No, <laughs> of course there are. Um, you know, it's more instrumental stuff. I can't remember the title of one recently I was really into. It was um, it was by Abdullah Ibrahim. He's like a he's a pianist. I think it's South African, maybe. He had a band called Dollar Brand. It's not very cool. I'm gonna kind of. But this was the song. I'll find it and you can play it so it's not all recorded. Um, it's called from an album called Water from an Ancient Well. I can send you it through. Um, it's just something about this song, and I'm like, wow, I'm, I'm kind of close to tears because of this song. Where is he? Abdullah Ibrahim. Uh, is this alright? Is this not. You're alright with this silence. Oh yeah, no. Fine. This song, it's called Manenberg Revisited. I won't play it now because it won't work on your recording. Oh, um, okay. But yeah, I can, George, is it worth playing it? Will it pick yeah, up? Yeah, Alright, I'll play it. And if not, I can always... This song kind of reduces me to tears sometimes. You'll get done for copyright. That's basically it. 
mean, the level of warmth is not as much because I guess, you know, we're sitting here and talking to me. Yeah. But I definitely feel some warmth. It makes me smile. For me it's the bass and it's the timbre, of especially the, the real kind of um, the woodwind part. And this is why I can't I can't even explain. It's something like the woodiness of the timbre, and I often try to unpick it. Is it is it the timbre, is it the melody, or is it the way the melody sits with the harmony? I don't know. But I also like the bubbling bass underneath. And it, because a, a piece of music like this has no connotations of um, you know, I guess social element of it. I, I don't think of this and think, oh, it was a great time in my life, or they were really cool, and it reminds me of, you know, 1992 when I was with so-and-so. has none of that. So in that sense, it's quite pure. It's like, wow, the impact of this is purely sonic. It's purely oral. It's going in somewhere and touching somewhere, um, which I find really interesting, because a lot of the other stuff, you know, when I listen to music, sometimes it can be... Okay, this reminds me of a certain time or a certain person, it can be quite nostalgic, but some songs that don't have that connotation, they have no nostalgia attached. Um, so I don't really know. It's music from the gods. Okay. <laughs> but that's that, yes, that's Abdullah Ibrahim, and that's called Man and Berg Revisited. I'm sure your listeners are probably going to go, what? Not at all, no. <laughs> <laughs> I think so. Some of my interviews are with um, people who are academics and then some are with musicians and some mm. are with fans so I'm trying to get um, a kind of spe a different spectrum yeah, yeah, different yeah. perspective so there'll be people that listen to that that will hear but I'm, I'm interested in it just you know just hearing it hearing your experience of it and understanding how your experience is different from my experience cultural yeah, yeah. like I I'm, I find it interesting. In that just, just, you know, I, I can feel sometimes, not so much there, but if, if I was, say, walking back to the tube on my own, I had my headphones in, I would feel the literal endorphins flooding me. And I can't describe it any more than that from certain songs. And that's, it's not about nostalgia. It's not about... There are times, obviously, when I, when I relate it and some of the hormonal releases in my brain are coming from a sense of nostalgia or relating it to something external. But in this sense, when I think of that pure music, it's like, wow, that's just, that's just penetrating. That's just going in. And I don't know why. You know, why is that? It's really interesting, I find. But, um, yeah, it's a whole other area. And I've, I've, I sort of see, I'm probably more interested in that than the, the industry stuff. For me, that's where it's that. Um, and I'm lucky enough to be in the music industry environment where I, I have a lot of knowledge and experience as well. Mm. You seem quite sort of grounded mm. in the sense that from the way you're speaking, and I don't want to assume it, which is why I'm asking, that it doesn't seem as if you would get pulled back into something. Mm. Um, but I just wanted to check that with you. And what's the something? The something, the getting pulled back into this, um, the drugs or the... the Maybe not even the drugs. Drama. The drama, yeah. Mm. Yeah, I mean, I agree. I think that I unpicked a lot and unpacked a lot through my own therapy. Um, I think, you know, as therapists, we've all got to continue our therapy anyway. I think it's, it's a must. Um, and we continually get more and more insight. Now, I do think I'm much more stable now. Um, well, no, we are I'm very solid and grounded I think the allure of the industry initially, which I found I needed, you know, I needed that sense of self-worth and that validation. I don't need that now. I really don't. You know, I can wholeheartedly say that. Oh, it's amazing to sign autographs and all that stuff, but it's coming from a healthy place where it's not a need. It's like, oh, that's, that's interesting. Um, and I think at that point in my life, there was a huge wound there where I did need it. So it was about being validated, recognised, and luckily enough, you know, the, the, the moons aligned and off I went on this journey where I was. But I don't. There's no need for that anymore. This is why I feel I can be, especially with my own releases. Um, there would have been a time if if I would have done a tour or sold some records and it would have diminished. I'd have been really down by that. And that's like, no, I, I do it for me. You know, the financial incentive isn't there because it's the music industry, really. And I don't want to engage in this whole rut. I'm going to make it big. Have I have no interest in that. I release to a very small fan base, and they support everything I do. And it's very small, but um, you know, it's kind of sincere, and it's I don't need that. There's no need, so I agree. I mean, it'll be very alluring, and who knows? You know, if, if we if we do some more stuff, um, maybe next year, 
I think there will be an element where I'm going to be, need to be mindful because it's very easy to say I see in a very grounded place in the middle of a framework which I, I can plan. You know, I know what I'm doing every day. Because in, in the band life, especially at Baby Champs, you don't know you're, you're whisked around from one minute to the next. So who knows? I definitely have a propensity to be able to do that, engage in and, and go, you know, manic. But I would like to think that I'm much more grounded now. But I think then it's we have to be mindful of, of how that can be potentially dangerous if we're not aware of some of our shadows, I think. Mm. Do, you, do you think to some extent that's connected to having your own family now? Yeah, I think so. I think that's much more grounding. Um, and because you have to have, I guess, an enhanced element of pragmatism around that. Mm. You know, bills need to be paid. I need to be a dad. Uh, you know, I need to be a husband. I need to be all these different things for other people before it was it was less so but I, th- I think definitely with kids and I think from my own experience of being a child and and uh, quite a fragmented sense of how I was parented I think I superimposed that where it's more important now to to you know to make sure that um I'm there for them I think it's really important I think it's it's integral as I say I think the the biggest gift from my own therapeutic journey rather than surviving it's probably been what I've passed on you know, this, this ability for for them to be emotionally regulated, be able to express themselves, and, and for me to be able to see them, you know, get them to at the point where I can say, to them, what do you want to do? Mm-hmm. You know, they can't say, oh, I want to be a YouTube superstar or play Fortnite. I say, well, maybe that's not too appropriate. But, you know, there's an element of them being seen, and I think if I think about my whole journey, you know, what I've passed on, well, I think we have a propensity to kind of carry on this stuff, passing it down the line. Um, and I think the biggest gift we can have is for the future generations, as, as you know, once we're in ourselves in therapy, how we can influence others. Cool. Thank you. No, thanks for having me. Good. No props. Love, 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 love. Fixed by time. Love, 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 love Love, 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 love Fixed by time Love, 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 love Adam for that interview. If you're interested to know more about what Adam is up to um, psychologically in terms of his work with musicians and his interest in music psychology, he's got an extra website called musicandmind.co.uk where he explores all of his developments there. Adam's about to launch a podcast of his own called A Musician's Mind. He's actually co-hosting this with journalist and Virgin Radio presenter Jen Thomas. Jen Thomas actually set up the idea herself after an award-winning documentary on music and mental health last year and the two of them have put their heads together. You can find that at A Musician's Mind on Twitter and that I think is launching very soon at the end of the summer. Just to give you a few helpline numbers as ever I always mention Help Musicians UK and Samaritans and Mind and Calm. The number for Music Minds Matter is 080888 8008 calm is 0800-585858 you can call samaritans for free and anonymously at 116-123 or email joe at samaritans.org that's joe spelt j-o you can also contact mind at mind.org.uk if you're interested in having therapy with adam you can get in contact with him music mind.co.uk if you feel like you would like to have some therapy and it's something you are interested in exploring and you're unsure what to do about how to access it you can either go 
via your GP to get access through the NHS or you can go privately. You can also self-refer. If you type in IAPT, I-A-P-T, into Google, you'll see a website which allows you to self-refer to counselling services within the NHS. Usually there is a waiting list involved and you can't guarantee the kind of therapy that you're going to get but it is something that you can self-refer to. You can also try agencies such as MIND. So earlier I mentioned mind.org.uk. If you type in that address and you follow the links to access counselling, you can do that. If you've been through a bereavement, you can also access bereavement counselling through the charity called CRUSE, uh, C-R-U-S-E. If private therapy is something that you're interested in, if you don't have a recommendation already, make sure that you access a therapy that is approved and registered with a regulatory body. The directories that I recommend you contact are Counselling Directory, the BACP Directory, the UKCP Directory and welldoing.org. You just type them into Google, you'll find the websites come up, type in your postcode and you follow the links, you'll get drop down menus asking you what kind of support you're after. You'll then get a list of all the therapists in your area and they will state what their fees are and what they can offer you and you can choose to set up an appointment with them. And I have put all this information underneath this episode online in written form. Finally, I had some amazing feedback earlier this month that I wanted to read out and got permission to read out from a loyal listener, David Walker. Um, He says, I just wanted to say I finally got round to listening to your podcast and the couple that I've listened to I've really enjoyed. I was so interested to hear them once I'd seen a couple of tweets that you'd put out. I think the fact that you're discussing mental health and music is an interesting subject and something I strongly relate to. I felt that music saved me in my younger years and even to this day. I had a very up and down childhood, parents divorced and some very messy and horrible situations that led from it in the years after had a big effect on me, but I started learning guitar and became obsessed with music. Whenever things got tough, I'd turn to the music, lock myself away, and that would always bring me back round again and give me the clear headspace I needed to carry on. I still turn to music now in the darkest times. I still have moments now where I'll go for a drive or play the guitar just to clear my head and just to say I find what you're doing inspirational. I hope you go from strength to strength with the pod. I'll be a regular listener from now on and I'm sure you'll inspire many more people along the way. Keep up the good work. Thank you so much David Walker. I really appreciate that message. That's it from me for today. Until next time, time's up. (laughs) 